Hey, welcome to another episode of Make Moves and Music. I'm your host, John Kleinbell. This week, we have Ryan Rossoff from the band Little King. It's a prog alt-rock band. They've had six records since 97. This week, we're going to be talking about, for all you music entrepreneurs out there, things like throwing a thousand pounds of spaghetti against a wall. What a cool image, right? And seeing what sticks. We're going to be talking about delegation, putting the aces in their places, talking about team building and how important that is. And we're also going to be talking with Ryan about the seventh release of his band, Amused to Q, that's going to be released on September 3rd. It's going to be amazing. Check it out. I have to apologize for the audio quality this week. It's not the best. We had a little bit of issues on both sides, but hopefully you still love the conversation because it was so dense and full of great, valuable information for you. Anyways, I really hope you enjoy the episode. Let's just jump right into it. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Appreciate it. Hey, this is so great. Thanks for joining me. We have Ryan Rossoff here. He's with the band Little King. It's a prog rock, alt rock band. It's been around since 97, recorded six records. Ryan, I thought maybe we could start things off. What was your introduction to the music industry? I'd love to hear a little bit about where your journey started in the music industry. Did it start when you were young? Did you have a, did you grow up in a musical family? I just love to hear the story. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in the anti-musical family. (laughs) I mean, my dad and mom played music around the house, but there was really no musicianship in my house, so to speak. I guess my brother picked up the clarinet when he was like 12. Every good Jewish kid, I think, needs to have uh, have a clarinet in his life. So that's what he (laughs) did. But, you know, growing up in Seattle... In the late 70s and on into the 80s, you know, I, I was born in 72. So, you know, I really grew up in the 80s in Seattle, and that was obviously pre-grunge. So the heroes in, in Seattle were Jimi Hendrix and Hart, Queensryche a little bit later. Obviously, Quincy Jones is from there, too. So there was a pretty rich history of music in Seattle before Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Alice in Chains and Mudhoney and on and on. So my introduction really was my, you know, through my brother just playing records. Uh, he's three years older than me. And listen to KISW, which was the dominant rock and roll station in Seattle and still is, as far as I know. So listening to those songs and listening to bands like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Iron Maiden, and then later on a little bit Rush and, uh, and some of the other more progressive bands, I really kind of got a sense of music. But I was such an athlete at the time. I was so immersed in playing basketball that I really didn't have a lot of time for both. But obviously, you know... As I got a little bit older and the other kids grew and I didn't, <laughs> you know, I ended up about five foot nothing. So, um, you know, I, I, the NBA, the NBA wasn't in my future. So I'm hearing, first of all, I heard Rush's record, a live record called Exit Stage Left, which I think came out in late 1981. It's probably about 10 years old when I heard it. And I couldn't believe it, man. It blew my mind that three guys you know, could do that in a live setting. And then I heard Eruption, you know, Eddie Van Halen right after that. And I was like, I want to do that. How do you do that? And so it just combination of those things. I think my mom then bought me a guitar. I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And it was an old Takamine, like real super Judas Priest looking heavy metal guitar, um, spikes and bells and whistles and all this stuff coming out of it. And so from there, I just, you know, kind of started noodling around a little bit and, and taught myself how to play. I am self-taught as a guitar player. You know, it's that old joke. How do you get a guitar player to shut up? you put sheet music in front of them. Well, that, I, I am that guy. So um, at the end of it, you know, I just sort of, my obsession sort of transferred from, uh, you know, from basketball and from sports into music. And, you know, I, I started playing my first band in high school. Uh, we were called the green tees. Um, we had a little green golf tee on it on the little logo. <laughs> we thought we were funny. I think, I guess it is funny in retrospect. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, it just kind of grew from there. And finally, you know, it got, got into my early 20s and moved to Texas and met some guys there and, and decided that I want to start writing songs. And so from there, you know, over the late, as you said, from since 1997, released six albums. And then we have our seventh record coming out here uh, September 3rd. So the rest is uh, long and sorted, but it is, the rest is history for sure. Amazing. So when you say you self-taught yourself to play guitar, what did that look like? Were you just like, oh, I want to learn how to play this riff, and so you practiced the riff while you were listening to it? Did you get a chord book? How did that look? I'm curious. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, I had a chord book. I became obsessed with the rush. I, I just, something about the three-piece, the combination of Neil Peart's, you know, really heady sort of erudite literature-inspired lyrics philosophy and literature it just it really appealed to me from a lyrical standpoint and then the musicianship obviously that sort of great combination of math and 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 right brain and left brain I mean they even have an album called Hemispheres which is sort of you know that combination of the left brain and right brain so fascinated with Rush at a really early age and so I basically played those records into the ground man I mean and we're talking you know vinyl this is well before CDs even existed so I just destroyed those records in my house and um I could basically, by the time I was probably 12 or 13, I knew all those Rush songs by heart from about the first 10 or 12 albums. I could just, I, I knew them back and forth. So what I did is I got a chord book, a guitar chord book, and I, okay, you put your hand here, you know, you put this hand there, and I said, okay, that's a D, that's an A minor, that's an E minor, and knowing the songs by ear, you know, by heart, and then knowing where the fingers went, I basically taught myself rhythm, and I, I couldn't read the music at all, but I couldn't read the chord charts. And so from there, I, could, I started to be able to play some Rush songs, some Led Zeppelin songs, a couple of U2 songs. I remember Sunday, Bloody Sunday was one that I picked up because it's a pretty easy song to play. So that was really the genesis of it, man. It's just knowing these songs by heart, having a chord book, starting to play it. But, but I figured out early on, man, I was like, I'm not really that interested in playing other people's songs. I'm like the worst guy at open mic. Like, don't invite <laughs> me to open mic. Because <laughs> I, I, I look and I go, uh, I can play along and hey, it sounds great. But at the end of the day, I was just much more interested, man, in writing my own songs. That's that appealed to me that learning other people's stuff and lost its allure pretty quickly, to be honest. Dude, it's like I think when I think about Rush, I think about prog rock, and I think about learning how to play those songs, it kind of makes me think it's just insane what they do with like the creative side that you were saying the right and the left brain side of it. It's almost like creative Sudoku, what they do. And, and imagine it kind of felt like a puzzle kind of figuring it out at first. Exactly. And you know what, it, the ethos of those songs what I've tried to bring a little King, you know, basically over the last 25 years almost is the combination of having something that is aesthetically pleasing and is pleasing to the ear and someone doesn't have to be a musician necessarily to be able to appreciate rush and to appreciate their songs. But by the same token, you know, I don't, I don't think in four, four, I don't think in four, I think in threes and fives and sevens and fours and, and 11 and, and 13 sometimes. So the ability to be able to slip those time signatures, you know, Tom Sawyer is a great example. Time stand still is a great, I mean, all their songs really, so to be able to have those time signatures that are a little bit different, but to be able to slide them into the radio and, and be able to get people thinking, maybe even if they don't know, but they're tapping their foot or tapping their fingers to a different time signature, it's really attractive to me. So that combination, again, that aesthetic of having these really beautiful, ornate songs that are pleasing to the ears, but at the same time, if you are a musician, trained or not, if you are a musician and you hear me like, wow, that's really cool, that's interesting. That's where the one is. The one isn't over here. The one is over here. Oh, wow. The one just changed again. What happened? But you can hum along to it. You can play along to it. You can sing along to it. 
without even really knowing that that's seven eight, which which to me again was was really motivating and stimulating and pleasing as a as a up and coming musician. And if you listen to Little King songs now, there isn't a ton in four. You know, there's some, there's a little bit, but the first song, Bombs Away, the first song on the new album, Amused Acute, Bombs Away has, you know, three or four different time signatures in there. But I think we slide them in there in such a way that you wouldn't really know unless you're paying attention. And hopefully the song flows well enough so that it does kind of capture that ethos of Rush, which is that combination of interesting time and tempo changes, but at the same time flows pretty well. Yeah, it seems like with that genre of music, you really do have to, otherwise you're going to take people for a loop. It's going to be jarring. That's part of the art form of it, right? And with your audience, I'm sure that that's like really part of the signature of your sound. I really want to hear next about the folk, uh, your friends of Little King. I want to hear a little bit about, if you don't mind sharing, how did you find your audience? How, how did this music that you started creating, you were inspired by these awesome bands and you went out and you started making your own music. How did you start to connect with your audience and how did they, perhaps some of them just found you? Yeah. I mean, I'm a dinosaur to a certain extent. We've kind of, I'm at that age and at that point in my career where we sort of had our foot in two different entirely sets or methods of being able to reach an audience. So early on in the, you know, in the late nineties, literally, you know, it was a dial up connection back in the day. There was no social media to speak of. There was not even Napster yet. There was no file sharing. So it was good old fashioned sending out massive press kits, knocking on doors, book shows from the musicians atlas you know the diy booking um magazine calling radio stations you know it was just good fashion elbow grease you know making flyers on a sheet of paper eight by eleven paper and then cutting them up and putting flyers on uh, uh you know sending them to people in street teams in different cities and putting them on cars i mean it's really the diy the old school way of doing it that worked and and it seemed to really reach people and of course you know back then i was in my 20s and I have kids, but I had one, one child at the time. My daughter was pretty young. And so I toured a lot. You know, we were on the road quite a bit, especially in the West Coast and the Southwest. We were spending a lot of time on the road. So that was kind of the original way of, of reaching people. Well, as I got older and I realized I had adult, adult responsibilities and I, I wanted to have a career, I didn't want to be sleeping in bathtubs and motel centers <laughs> in the back of my Ford Taurus uh, too much longer. So touring became a little more difficult. We did have some label support. I've had a few um, label deals through the years, so had some touring support. Was at least able to eke out a little living, or at least be able to break even on the road, which a lot of bands, you know, still can't say it to this day. So, as things progressed into the mid 2000s, and as I had built my first website, and that social media, you know, 2008, 2009 started to creep its way into the consciousness of musicians, and certainly file sharing, and people had music on their iPods. Things changed. So. Reaching people has obviously changed a lot. I think now it's, I mean, it's tough because the market's so saturated. I mean, it is, there's pros and cons to the way the music business has evolved. Anybody can make a record for a thousand bucks, like Pro Tools LE system, and you're good to go, man. I mean, there's so many samples and loops and, and, and as you as a producer understand how easy it is to manipulate drum sounds and manipulate, you know, guitar sounds and things of that nature and to be able to mix and master, anybody can do it. That's good. But it also means that there's a lot of crap all out there too. <laughs> so, you know, it is a saturated market. I'd like to believe that the cream rises to the top. I don't obviously think that's always the case. I mean, all you have to do is look at the you know top 200 of billboard to know that isn't necessarily the way it is. But I mean, it's through attrition, honestly. Like I, I, I put out two records in the last year and a half, you know, including the one coming up, pretty active on social media. We have a really great college radio promoter and campaign. We're actually, we just charted at number 137 in our fourth week on, on the NACC charts, which is, which is cool for us. You know, we have a video promoter 
that uh, has got the new video uh, Bombs Away, which has like over 65,000 views as of, I think, this morning. So it's all of these different methods. I mean, it's throwing a thousand pounds of spaghetti against the wall and kind of seeing what sticks. The key to me now is how do we get back on the road? How do we take what we do as a three-piece and get it out there to the people? I think we're, we're still a live band. I mean, drummer Eddie, he was in ministry for a while. He was the drummer for Overkill for a while. He's the drummer for Pissing Razors and the founding member of that band. He's an absolute beast. And then Manny, my bass player and one of my best friends, they're both you know, two of my best in the world. This band needs to play live. I'm a performer, man. That's what I freaking do. And so to me, not being able to get these songs on the road would be a travesty. We booked a ton of shows, man, for, Ox- for Occam's Foil, which was the last record. We had festival dates lined up for March and April and May and June of 2020. Obviously, that disintegrated along with everybody else. So instead of going on tour, I basically just wrote another record because I wanted to stay active. It did so well last time that I wanted to kind of build off that momentum. So now it's a question of how do we take the last couple albums, format that for a you know 45-minute set? I mean, shit, dude, I've got so much music, like 55 songs that we can play live. So it's really paring that set list down. Me playing them and singing them live. I mean, this is somewhat progressive rock, so I got to make sure that I can nail these songs live. It's not easy. So I'm basically, you know, in the woodshed now doing my thing, um, trying to figure out which songs resonate with me as an artist and also what I think will, will translate. So how do you reach an audience, man? I mean, this is a part of it, obviously, talking to people like you, networking and communicating. But at the end of the day, dude, there's no better way to make fans than to communicate with them from a stage. You can't approximate that no matter what, not no video, no amount of social media, no amount of iTunes, Spotify, Apple, these are none of that stuff can approximate that seeing your favorite band and hearing that song that you like live and having someone shred a guitar solo and having someone make jokes from the stage. That's the thing that really at the end of the day does it. So I understand that we appreciate that. And that's something that is certainly in the near future, hopefully for little King and provided I could get my band together and, and justify the expense of going out and, and, and grinding it out on the could not agree more. The live experience is just, it's, it is really needed. I, I would say that it's needed now more than ever with everything that's crazy that's going on right now. It's so cool to hear like how hard you worked and the attitude that you took of like, let's see what works. Let's throw that. I love the thousand pounds of spaghetti on the wall. That's such a good quote. I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life. But the thing is that I really took away from all that is like part of what caused you to never give up is this real, true passion for live performance that you obviously have that really fuels that and, and kind of fuels your hustle. And it sounds like you put a lot of effort into it and a lot of effort into giving to the fans and really just like, it sounds like you just have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to like your catalog and, and how you're going to be able to shape this live performance that you're going to be taking out, hopefully onto the road sometime soon. It makes me wonder, like, how do you stay organized with all of that? Is there, like, I imagine it's it's got to be because, like you said, there's so many moving pieces. There's there's podcasting. There's like showing up for reviews and just doing like the PR stuff, the press releases, practicing going into the woodshed, getting your chops down for the road. Like, how do you stay organized and keep your mind with everything that's going on, Ryan? Yeah. It's a great question, man. I'm a really organized person in general. I mean, I run a business too. You know, I, I own a corporate team building company out in Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, we, we hosted, you know, 350 virtual events in the last year. So, you know, I'm doing that as well. I have two kids. I raise, I'm a single dad. So I have a son who's 14, as I told you off, you know, off air, um, you know, he's a freshman. So I think 
I've always been super motivated. Like I'm a pretty driven person. And I realized early on that if I wanted to get things accomplished, I had to be as organized as I possibly could be. I'm also a manager too. You know, I mean, as a small business owner, I have to manage personnel. I have to manage employees. Same is true in your music business, man. And you know this as well as anybody. You have to manage different aspects and you have to have your aces in their places. And I hate the cliche, but it's so true. I mean, let the publicist do their job. Mm. Let the radio promoter do their job. Have weekly check-ins, but don't bust balls. You know, they know what they're doing. I hired them because they, they're good at their jobs. And so having good people in place is, is incredibly important. And I do, I have literally have three publicists that are all doing little bits and pieces of what they do well. I have a, a college radio promoter. You know, I'm my, I'm my webmaster. I have a social media person who does most of our social media posts. So having a team of people who are competent and also that you can relate to and, and they're willing to be communicative and have good check-ins, that's, that's, that's a huge key other than just my ridiculously kind of organized brain as it were. The other thing too, which I cannot emphasize enough, man, and again, I know you can relate to this because of what you do. Mastery of technology is, is ridiculously critical. I don't know where I'd be without my phone and my laptop, Mm. But being able to have things calendared and being able to have literally just files saved on your phone and being able to access documents and being able to manipulate those documents, that, that sense of organization, that digital organization. I mean, I make notes too. I mean, I have, I have hand notes. Again, as I told you before, I'm sort of a dinosaur and that I kind of have my feet in both you know, pre-technology and post-technology worlds. Um, so I, I can do both. I think it gives me a distinct advantage over some of my contemporaries just because I feel comfortable sort of segueing back and forth into both worlds, you know, the analog world and the digital world. So being organized, I, there's no way I could accomplish the things that I do without having that digital formatting and organization. But at the same time, I mean, the passion carries you through, dude, I'm certainly not doing this for money. You know, there's no way that I would be in a, in a situation where now if I had to rely on, you know, making music, um, my own music, little King music for a living. It, it wouldn't work unless I gave up all of the other aspects of my life. And I'm simply not willing to do that, dude. Like, so the live performances have taken a backseat for the last few years, simply because at the end of the day, what's the most important thing to me, dude, it's that legacy. It's, it's making those records. It's the songwriting. It's the craft. It's getting into the studio with experts, with people who know better than me, the engineers, the mixing engineers, the mastering engineers, Having those records at the end of the day hanging wall—that's my legacy, man. I have this, you know, this fantasy of, you know, in a hundred years, a hundred years, my great 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 grandkids or whatever, you know, will see who the hell was that crazy bald dude, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and and they'll be able to take those records off the wall or get them off, you know, whatever the whatever the digital format is at that time, and they'll you know be able to read the words and be able to hear the music and be like. God, you know, that's what that guy was about. Hopefully, you know, that's my legacy. And so more than live performance, more than money, more than anything else, my personal satisfaction with the process as well as having that legacy for my, my great, great grandkids and, and for people in the future, that's really what drives than anything else. And again, consequentially, that's why I have to stay as organized as I do. Wow. There's so much, so much to unpack there with what you just said, Ryan, in terms of like driving forces for being a creative, your legacy. I tell people this all the time, the music that you write, this is stuff that stays in the family for, if you protect it, it stays in the family for your entire lifetime and an extra 70 years. And it's like literally like generational assets, but also more than just assets. It's like generational 
creative talent that your family can reflect upon and say, wasn't that really cool what he did? My kids are both grown up. My, my daughter's 24 and my son's 14. Son Asher, he actually, you know, he has a piano on the new record. So he's good enough and he's accomplished enough and he rehearsed enough so that he actually has a part at the end of the song called Set It Down. And it's a beautiful sort of plaintive piano piece, which, which is mimicking or doubling a bass line at the end of the song. The ability to have my kids now kind of appreciate more what their dad does and not only be able to appreciate it, but actually to be able to contribute and participate. And, and he wrote his part. I didn't, I didn't touch his part. He did what he needed to do. So that, that legacy and that piece of it is just, it's so meaningful to me to be able to have my children participate, man. It's a, it's a pretty cool thing. Amazing. Yeah. There were a couple other things that I wanted to just unpack a little bit from what you said as well. In terms of delegation, it's something that I talk about all the time. It's way better to build like a winning team than to try and do everything yourself because it's literally impossible. Even for a jack of all trades like myself, it's literally impossible for me to do every single thing to an exceptional level. I wondered if you had any advice for, there's probably listeners out there that are thinking, you know, I might like to start to unload some of my workload on uh, to somebody who can do a really good job with it and I can help manage them and, and build a good relationship with them, like you talked about. Is there any advice you might give to somebody who's just kind of starting to go down that path? Oh, I might like to hire a social media person, or I might like to hire a PR firm. Anything that you might, just with your experience with all this, that you might like to pass along? Absolutely. Yeah, I have a few pieces of advice, of course. <laughs> the first is to understand the medium before you hire anybody. You have to be an expert in the medium, but you do have to at least have a cursory understanding of how things work and, and be able to have, you know, understand the vernacular, be able to speak the language of each of these particular disciplines, whether it's radio, how that works and charts, or whether it's social media and the different formats for social media, or whether it's publicity and press and traditional print press you know, versus digital press. First of all, have at least a cursory understanding. Do your research. It's like anything else. The more you read, the more people you talk to, the better. So that's the first thing. Once you get to that point, then it's really, I mean, literally back in the day, I used to look up my favorite bands in magazines, man, like in the late 90s, early 2000s, and call their management offices and be like, who's the publicist? Who are you using? You know, I mean, if you, let, if you sound like Rush or Chevelle, or Faith No More, you don't want Tupac's publicist or Britney Spears' publicist, right? You want somebody that, that is in your genre. I mean, clearly money talks, unfortunately, it's the way of the world. You can definitely, as a young artist, find people that'll take you on spec or take you to a reduced rate. But you typically, like anything else, you get what you pay for. Um, so I think, you know, being willing to spend the money where it is, having a budget, having a legitimate budget saying, I have $4,000 to promote a record for three months. Where am I going to allocate those $4,000? What makes the most sense? Where do I get the best bang for my buck? Maybe it's just running $4,000 worth of Facebook ads. I have friends that do just Facebook and Google ads and do nothing else. Um, my buddy Jared from, uh, he's in a band called The March Divide. He's sort of like a solo artist. And, and Jared is a master at Google ads. Like he literally makes a living from touring as a solo artist and the return of investment from his Facebook and Google ads. That's all he does. He doesn't have a publicist. He doesn't really do radio promotion. He doesn't do anything. This, uh, you know, so having that understanding, knowing where those dollars should be allocated, I think that's good. As far as building a team, I mean, I own a, 
freaking team building company. Like if I don't have a team, you know, who's going to have a team? Like I am such a believer in, in, in having a team and, and having good people and not micromanaging dude, like letting them do their job, you know, making sure that those people feel empowered by me. I'm checking in on them, but I'm also not busting balls by any means. So, you know, having a team, having a competent team, but man, that budget piece is critical knowing what it is that you have to spend and then literally laundry, laundry listing out, all the ways that you might be able to spend money to make a record and then to release that record and to put it in the distribution and then promote it. I think that's it. You know, that's such sage advice. It's like, you gotta, in order to hire somebody, you gotta have at least a, a little bit of an understanding of what it is that you're getting into. Otherwise there's the potential. You could always get fleeced. You could always, you could always just like not even know how to, how to properly direct them in, in a way that's like going to help you reach your goals. So much good stuff that you unpack there. And also just being willing to invest in what it is that you're doing, because like you said, I mean, you might be able to get a college intern or, or college, a college student to to do something on spec or something like that but it's like are you you, you probably are going to get what you pay for with that they're they're not going to have the experience they're not going to have the connections uh which is a lot of times in the music industry is so important that's so cool like so i'm curious about this team building the side of your hustle how that all came about and maybe you could share a little bit about about that side of your life and and how that how, how that all kind of came to be and, and why it's like a huge part of what you do nowadays. I uh, was living back down in Texas and I was teaching high school. I was actually a high school English teacher for a couple of years down in El Paso. And just uh, kids at the time that were younger, wasn't making any money. And so my wife, my second ex-wife, I like to say, um, <laughs> at the time <laughs> decided we wanted to relocate back to the Bay Area. And so uh, I got a job in uh, corporate event planning basically up in San Jose in Silicon Valley. Uh, so we were doing a lot of booking of wedding bands and bar mitzvahs and corporate events um, and DJs and lighting and production and things of that nature. And I liked the job. It was cool, but it didn't quite speak to me. So eventually I worked for another facility and I discovered corporate team building, which really spoke to me in a lot of different ways. First of all, I mean, my clients are pretty, some pretty cool companies. I mean, you know, kind of the usual suspects in, in Silicon Valley are, are, are the people that I work with. And so I'd like to think some of the smartest people in the world, some of the most accomplished people in the world are my clients, which is stimulating and cool. But team building um, has a negative connotation, I think, for a lot of people. Um, it's not as cheesy as it sounds. <laughs> At least it's not, it's not your mom's team building is, is what I like to say. Um, we do a lot of things virtually and digitally, but it combined a few different disciplines. So it combined the creativity of creating these team building programs, which I really liked. Um, aspects of education. As I said, I was a high school teacher before. So being able to educate people, certainly there's a large uh, performance aspect to this. You're in front of people and you have to be a good public speaker. You have to be able to communicate really clearly and directly. So um, I, I started this company with a couple of buddies of mine 10 years ago. And I think the first year we did like seven events and I'm like, God, what the hell am I going to do? You know, this is never going to work. Uh, but through attrition, sort of like with the music career, you keep chipping away a little bit at a time, keep banging on doors. And, you know, lo and behold, about four or five years ago, it really kind of took off. And, and as I said, you know, when, when the pandemic hit in March of last year, we were in trouble. We didn't know what we were going to do. I thought, God forbid, I was actually going to have to get a real job, which I really didn't want to do. Um, but we pivoted. Uh, there's that word pivot. And in, in the course of pivoting, created a bunch of virtual team building programs. I think we have 13 of them now total. Uh, and people just flocked to it because our clients were so loyal and we were so loyal to our clients. 
we actually facilitated 378 virtual events in the last year. Um, and again, you know, Apple and Google and Cisco and Yahoo and Intel and Adobe, wow. all of those companies up and down the peninsula and in the Silicon Valley um, have just really glommed onto it. So we've had some success. I'm definitely not making a ton of money. It's not particularly lucrative like it used to be, um, but we're still staying in the consciousness of people. And the events, the, the in-person events have kind of trickled back a little bit at a time. So it's fulfilling to me, again, to be able to work with these super bright people at these amazing companies and also have that performance aspect to have the creativity of creating these programs and putting people through the paces. And then, you know, at the end, you're able to sit back and say, well, at least I've contributed something to their corporate culture, maybe given them some communication tips or the ability to understand leadership styles. I like the nerdy wonky side of it a little bit too. Um, some of the organizational development aspects that we do. So um, it, it may seem sort of divergent from the music business and, and from, from the creative side of the music, but there are a lot of parallels. And again, that ability to be able to lead a team, to put a team together, to be able to communicate with them, that transcends everything. And boy, does that relate back to your last question, which is bringing that team together. Even if it's just a band, even if it's just within your group of three or four or five or six people in your group, understanding how to communicate to them, understanding where their strengths are, understanding where your own strengths are and how everybody can contribute that team band connection. Um, I mean, I don't have to tell you again. I mean, that is, that is critical. And in, in terms of longevity, I think of being able to keep a band together. Some of the things I've learned through the team building, it, it transcends just corporate. And it really, I think it really speaks to people that, that have to coexist in a band. Again, you know, going back to Rush, those guys coexisted for 40 years as a three piece, 40 years. There's something to be said for that longevity. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's what I do. That's my day gig. I have my other day gig. I got a lot going on, man. <laughs> Ryan, I just wanted to say, it's so cool because one of the questions I was going to ask is how do you keep this longevity with what you're doing on the creative side with your band? And it's like, it really doesn't surprise me that that this is such a, it's a big part of your life and, and one of those things that has really just been a, it sounds like a natural extension of your gifts that you've been able to to help out these large multinational corporations with their team building stuff. Anytime I think about the word team building, I think of like Flight of the Conqueror. It's like team building exercise 99. I think of like, it's like these cheesy, like the office uh, kind of things. But then the, I think of like somebody like you, it's like you'd be able to go in and, and kind of like in a way just it, it's almost like completely disarming because it's like you're, you're this cool rock guy and it's, it, it, is that that one of the things that you bring to it? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, based on you know my proximity, I don't get to do as much hosting as I would like. Um, sometimes if there's a big event and there's a high level debrief that's going to be associated with a particular event, I'll fly out you know, to California from Arizona and I'll do it. Um, I'm more on the sales side of it now. I'm the CEO basically of the company. So I do a lot of that stuff. Um, I don't facilitate maybe as much as I used to. Um, but for lack of a better term, man, I, I, I just really never gave a fuck what people thought of me mm. um, for better or for worse. And so I have no fear of being in front of anybody. Um, I just don't carry that with me. I guess I have enough confidence. I mean, I try, you know, humility is key and, and the people I'm attracted to most are the most humble people. Um, and I try to bring that aspect of it as well, but it doesn't mean you don't have self-confidence. You can be humble and confident in the same, in the, by the same, you know, in the same body. Um, so to me, 
it's just the ability to be in front of people. And certainly from a performance standpoint, you know, I am used to being in front of people and singing and playing and that, but when you carry that confidence of not really caring so much about what other people think, that gives you the ability to really speak plainly and to tell, you know, a C-level guy at Apple or a frontline worker at, you know, a tiny startup, the same. I'm the same with everybody. It doesn't matter mm. to me because at the end of it, if someone likes me or someone respects me or appreciates me, it's not going to affect me one way or the other. I want to do a great job. I want to be effective. I want to be that guy that someone can look back to and say, wow, you know, he really communicates at, at a high level and he can really communicate some some uh, objectives and, and some things that we're trying to get accomplished. That's important to me. But at the end, if they don't like me uh, or if they don't respect me, it's not going to alter my trajectory whatsoever. So I think more than anything, that's what makes me effective as, you know, as a facilitator and as someone that can, that can lead a group. Wow. Yeah. Well, the, the respect that you get from just being yourself, you said like the no fucks given approach. It, it makes me look, cause I think about the website that your website's really cool. It's got so much information for, uh, for little King. And I look at the press page and I, and it's, it's really like crazy. It's for anybody listening, go check it out. You've done like a ton of interviews, tons of reviews, all that stuff. And it makes me think, well, this stuff that you're doing here, it has, it maybe has like a direct impact on some of this being comfortable, being able to show up for interviews, being able to show up for the reviews, being able to do like PR stuff and be able to interface with somebody who's working on PR in an effective way. Um, would you say that this is stuff that you kind of had to learn over time in terms of like growing into your own, uh, just filling your own shoes when it came to like not giving a fuck and just like, this is who I am and being able to take that into the, the, the world of, of like, you know, this is, this is the band and this is what we're about um, showing up for the media. Was that something that was natural to you or as an artist, did you have to kind of learn to be comfortable with that? Be more comfortable, like you were saying like that, that humble, but confident approach. Yeah, I think, yes. I mean, you have to learn anything. You get better at anything as you go. Um, I know the 10,000 hours is, is a thing, but um, you certainly, I think, become more comfortable as you move forward in any discipline. And after 20-some-odd you know, years of doing interviews and, and doing things like this, um, certainly I'm probably in a place that other people might not be at just because they don't have the amount of experience. I, I think back to my childhood, though, like when I was a little kid. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood that was really a unique situation. I grew up in a place called Mercer Island, uh, which is just outside of Seattle. It's a suburb of, uh, of Seattle, Washington. And in my neighborhood, we were blessed because in our neighborhood, there was tons of kids, man. So all you ever had to do to like find somebody to play with, um, in particular sports, was to walk outside and just holler and, and people would come. And, and a bunch of athletes where I grew up, um, as a matter of fact, the guy who lived across the street from me is now the coach of the Utah Jazz, a guy named Quinn Snyder. So he taught me how to play basketball and wow. he's phenomenal, like he's an amazing basketball player, um, which is Actually, as, and as a side note, I'm actually going to see all those guys up in Phoenix in a couple weeks. One of my buddies is turning 50. So to give you an idea of how close we all are still, there are like 27 of us that are meeting at this hotel in Scottsdale in a couple of weeks just to celebrate someone's 50th birthday. So I've known some of these guys for 45, 46 years. We've been friends. Wow. Amazing. Um, but I was small. I was always a little guy. And I, was, I was three or four years younger than most of the other athletes in the neighborhood, five years younger, and always the littlest guy. And so... I mean, they beat my ass consistently when I was a kid, but it, you know, I kept going back, kept going back more, kept playing more. And so eventually I was able to hold my own and especially in basketball, you know, kick some of their asses, you know, even the bigger guys and the older guys. 
And so that, I think there was a, a sense of confidence born from that, like on the basketball court or on the small diamond or on the football field. If you're small but quick and, and you're able to use your brain, I think that gave me a little bit more confidence moving forward. And, and just like, man, I mean, life is short. To, mm. to proceed into life and to proceed into complex situations or things that are important and to not bring your best effort based on fear, which is honestly, dude, is the most powerful factor in most people's lives. I'll say that again for the, for the gallery in the back. Fear is the most powerful factor in most people's lives. And to allow fear to take you off of your path or to not experience something that you really wanted to, want to experience, I think is a cardinal sin. And so I think I recognize that at an early age. I wasn't going to allow fear to, to derail me and my, from my ambition. And I haven't. And so maybe the combination of all the things that we're talking about has put me in the place where I am. But I mean, I want to know you, dude. Like you and I have never met before today, but now we're friends. Yeah. And now we know each other. And the next time I'm in LA or in Ohio, and the next time you're back out visiting people in Tucson, guess what? We're going to hook up and you're going to be able to help me. And hopefully I'm going to be able to return the favor and help you in some way. We will. That's the way it works, man. And so that's how I've carried myself forward. And, and I think my life is so much richer for it because I just, I'm not so worried about what you're going to think of me. And I think you're probably not so worried so much about what I'm going to think of you. But at the end of it, we're going to like each other. We're going to be friends because we have that like mind and carrying that ethos to the next interview that you do and to the next person that I meet, the next interview that I do. It's a winning formula. I just really believe that, man. And I'm not going out based on fear. I'm going out based on love and friendship and kindness and reciprocation for the things that we can bring to each other's lives. Oh, man. I love that so much. To mirror back everything that you said there, definitely next time I'm in Tucson, uh, we're going to go grab some food at uh, Nico's or uh, I don't think uh, Cafe Boca Cosa is open anymore, but <laughs> which makes me a little sad, but maybe bison witches or something. But yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. It's it's the perspective that you have on everything in, in terms of, you know, there used to be perhaps some type of fear at some point, but then I just, I had to really just kind of say, I don't give a fuck anymore. And it's just, this is who I am. And, and, and to be able to attract like-minded people into your life, it's one of the things that's really changed in my life over the last 10 years, especially is that, you know, you seem to attract the type of people that you are going to help and they could potentially help you. And it's a, uh, it's really a great thing. Once that gets going, it can get going in any number of ways. It can get going in the, in the corporate world, if you're working on team building stuff, but it could also for sure get working on the music side of things. And that's like some of the biggest stuff that's happened for me has been just natural extensions of the cool relationships that I start to build. And, um, and I just show up for the best I can, you know, so, so such powerful stuff you had to share there. I know that uh, yeah. the, the very first thing you talked about fear uh, about fear is definitely going to be one of the highlight clips that I, uh, I edit for this podcast episode. It was just a really moving, you know, really, really powerful stuff. You have put so much effort into your music career and, and it's, it just shows from, from like the work, the hustle, the showing up for it, the not giving up. I could go on and on about the things that you're talking about here, Ryan. Um, unfortunately we're, we're kind of running up against, the the end of the podcast but i want to make sure like this has been a phenomenal interview and and i want to give an opportunity for you to talk a little bit about this exciting new album that's getting released on september 3rd uh amused a q is that how you say it uh 
please let me know if I said that correctly, but uh, I would love to hear all about the album, uh, anything you'd like to share with the audience about what's about to happen here in like a week or so, please, please, I'd love to hear all about it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so this is our seventh record. There's seven songs on this album, just a skosh under 30 minutes, which I guess still makes it an EP, although anymore, who knows? Um, as I said, we had a lot of success in 2019 and early 2020 with another EP called Occam Spoil. And each album that I release has a theme. I do have a background in creative writing. And so um, that's my college education is, is in English creative writing. So instead of writing novels and writing films and things like that, I decided that I was going to bring that to my music. And so there are always cohesive through lines and themes for every record. Um, and this one is no different. So Occam Spoil was great, um, but we didn't get a chance to tour because everything disintegrated. So instead of going on the road, um, you know, March rolled around of last year and the pandemic hit and we were quarantined and isolated. And so I had all this energy and all this, you know, uh, these things that I wanted to accomplish. So what I did is I wrote a record and basically each of the songs on Amused Q, the Q stands for the quarantine. So Q is quarantine. Uh-huh. Also makes fun of the fucking QAnon stuff. Um, Daily <laughs> Q, which is a, which is a, uh, uh, radio station in El Paso that's been super kind to us. Um, and there's also a muse. So it was how I was amused in quarantine was writing songs, but it's also amused. The muse Melpomania is, uh, is the lady on the cover of the album. And she is the muse of chorus and the muse of tragedy from uh, she's Zeus's one of Zeus's 4 million daughters. But anyway, each of these songs in some way relate to my experiences in quarantine, sitting on my bed with my guitar, writing songs. So Bombs Away is the first song and it's sort of an overview of what I was feeling in isolation and watching, you know, doom scrolling and watching the death toll on CNN and, and just kind of watching the world disintegrate around me. Yeah. Uh, Keyboard Soldier is the next song and that's sort of the pitfalls of social media as well as referencing the election and, and, the, and the BLM movement, which I've certainly invested in. Um, How Could You is the next song, which is actually features for the first time a lady, um, someone else singing lead vocals, um, my friend Jessica Flores, who is a singer, song about domestic violence. I felt like I needed to have a female voice singing that. And she just crushed it. She did such a great job. Um, Set It Down is the fourth song where my son plays. And is my battle with sobriety. I actually got a really stupid, bad DUI in 2019 and my for a year. Um, I was clearly drinking way too much the last few years of my life. So Set It Down is sort of my battle with sobriety. And certainly in quarantine was I to sober up. But, you know, I'm, I'm, 20 months sober, you know, and I have no interest in alcohol at all. I'm just, I'm done with it. It's a past phase of my life. So, um, and on, thank you. And on and on and on. All these songs have, you know, in some way, for, you know, relate to what I was going through in quarantine. Um, I love these songs, dude. Like, I always like a record when it's out, but there's always cringe moments, even right after the record's mixed and mastered. And again, I know you can relate to that. There are ones here and there where you hear them and you're like, God, you know. I wish I'd sang that vocal differently. I wish maybe I'd transpose that step down. I wish maybe I'd played that solo a little bit differently. This is the first time I've ever released a record where I felt like the entire thing sounded exactly the way it's supposed to sound. This is also the first time where I came to LA to mix and master. So we mixed with a guy um, who I found on soundbetter.com. I don't know how much experience you have with that, but uh, Soundbetter is an amazing clearinghouse for mixing guys and mastering people. And I found him, I found Daniel Salcido, um, he's mixed Plain White Tees and Disturbed and I think Avenged Sevenfold. Um, young guy uh, in his mid-30s, and he has a little studio in downtown Los Angeles. So he was amazing. Daniel's a beast and did such a good job. We've become really good friends. I just trust him. 
but he gave a professional veneer to this one that I'd never really had before in a different set of ears. He didn't know me. He'd never heard of Little King. He had no fucking idea what I was about. So having him mix and me spending some time with him, but for the most part, again, delegating as a manager, saying, you're the expert, you're the mixing engineer, not me. Send me some mixes. I'll give you my critique. I made pretty ridiculous, meticulous mixing notes, but for the most part, he told me to fuck off when he needed to tell me to fuck off. And that was really powerful. And then the record was mastered by a guy named Maurer Applebaum, who is, uh, Maurer's worked with a lot with Faith No More. Uh, he mas- mastered a bunch of Yes records. He mastered my friend Caesar Soto's record uh, from Man of Mute. Caesar's now the guitar player from Ministry. So I had some pros working on this that I hadn't used before. And I think that takes that, the mastering and, you know, is the last 10% of the record and the mixing is the last 25, 30% of the record. And I just feel really comfortable this time that those guys made these songs. The performances are great. I'm in love with the performances of the guys playing on the record, the arrangements, fantastic job. I can't take much credit for the string arrangements and the bass player and the drumming and the singing, just my parts. Um, but those guys really took this one to the level where now when I listen back, I'm in the car, I have my earbuds in and I listen to this record. I'm like, you know, it brings tears to my eyes. And I was like, fuck yeah, dude, that's how little King is supposed to sound. And I'm just, we've shared a couple songs. The rest of the album comes out. I get goosebumps when I hear a lot of the arrangements on there. And I'm just like, I'm so excited to share it with my family and my friends and our fans and the people who've been so loyal because I know that we couldn't have made this record better. And it just gives me the confidence to be able to send it out in the world and then let, let the chips fall where they may, man. And I, and I feel like this is, this is the one I swear to God, after 25 years, you know, this is the one <laughs> that's going to take us to where we want to go. So uh, God willing, you know, that's, that's what happens, but I'm feeling it, dude. What a great story. It's so cool, everything about it in terms of how you were able to, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, it's like take lemons, turn them into lemonade. It's like you took this, what was incredibly challenging and, and, and still to some extent just continues to be incredibly challenging and frustrating for so many people with this pandemic and, and, and everything that's happened over the last couple of years, uh, to be able to take that and to funnel it into something that is productive something that that it's it's something that you it sounds like from what you're saying is just like truly authentically creatively who you are and to be able to execute on that to be able to put together such amazing performances and then bring the team together and then to go that extra level and put out a little bit of money to I don't know how much you paid but it could be a lot of money to to hire these people that are really at the top of the game in terms of being able to mix master, give this thing the polish that it really deserved to have. I'm very excited for you. And I can't wait to hear the whole album. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And and just to speak to the money part of it, we were talking about budgets before and how you allocate money, spend your money with professional, you know, music makers um, that you can promote all you want, but if the core sound isn't there, you're just polishing turds, man. And <laughs> it's the best money. And it wasn't that expensive, all things being equal. The amount of money that I spent with those guys is literally like the best, you know, few thousand bucks that I could have possibly spent. I don't regret a dime of it. It's exactly where that money was supposed to go. So I'm excited for you to hear it too. I'm excited for everybody to hear it. Um, our website, as you said, is comprehensive. We're littlekingtunes.com. All our social media stuff is on there. You can find basically more than you would care or know about me and our band uh, on our website. But yeah, September 3rd, it comes out, uh, it hits the world and uh, you know, let's see what happens. Like I said, I think this one's going to do what I intended it to do. Awesome. 
Well, yeah, so excited for you. I'm very, one thing I did want to, um, maybe before we close things out, Ryan, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for all your insights and, you know, just sharing who you are as a creative, but also as on, on the other side of it, it's like the business of the music industry, sharing so, dropping so many gems. I, I was thinking maybe it would be cool to end the podcast by sharing any type of encouragement you might give all the folks listening who are looking to find their audience in the music industry. Yeah, I mean, you, the, the best advice that I could ever give anybody is just stay true to your artistic vision. Um, the legacy is what it is. And if you sit back in two years, five years, or 10 years, or in my case, 24 years, and you're able to enjoy what it is that you've produced, there is an audience for it. If you're honest with yourself when you're critical and you're, and you're self-evaluating, and you honestly, at the end of it, you enjoy what it is that you put out, there will be an audience for it. That's the thing, the creativity, the art itself is the thing. The rest of that stuff will follow. Don't worry so much about how people are receptive to it. Because I can tell you for a fact, because I just did this about a week ago, listening back to songs that I wrote 24 years ago and that I recorded 23 years ago and sitting in my car, you know, and turning that stuff up and laughing and even crying a little bit, thinking about, you know, the moment that I recorded, what was I playing? What was I wearing? Who was in the studio? What equipment were we using? The memories that last for me, you know, and the guys that I worked with and the women that I worked with and those professionals, it's all I ever need, man. The rest of it definitely takes care of itself and it is a moving experience to be able to reflect back. And if, and if you go for that and you keep that in mind and that's the goal, the audience will be there. The accolades and whatever it is that you're interested in will be there, but nothing can replace that feeling of listening back and having pride in what it is that you've created. What a great way to end things here. What, what a great, great advice to give. Thank you so, so much, Ryan. For anybody out there who wants to check out what Little King's up to, go to littlekingtunes.com. Uh, there's links to all the social stuff on there as well. Their seventh release, Amused Q, is going to be released on September 3rd. Please check it out. Uh, thanks again so much, Ryan. This has been such a pleasure. The pleasure's all mine, my friend. I look forward to meeting you in person. And uh, this is just the beginning of our journey, not the end. So I'll see you soon, I'm sure. Likewise, likewise, have a fantastic rest of your week, man. All right, we'll talk soon. Yeah.